0: welcome to newsworthy with Norrisworthy get ready for some awesome so today we have returning to the podcast Diana Butler bass how are you today hey Luke I'm doing good you've been on like we you were on um, how long ago was it it was a while ago it, you had what was your what was your last book called
1: uh, my last book was called grounded finding God in the world and I think there it is. I think that we recorded probably around November 2015.
0: Well, it's been it's been 3 years. And so has oh. anything happened in your world? Do you have anything to talk about today?
1: Oh gosh, my daughter's at college. No, I'm just kidding. Um I I've written a new book. <laughs> you
0: your daughter there, there. we talked about your daughter last time because Yeah. Wasn't there there was some terrible crime. Someone was murdered. Mm-hmm. It like your daughter's high school classmate or something like
1: that. Wasn't that in the book last time it was that formed part of the uh narrative of grounded i talked about neighborhoods being one of the places where we find god that Mm -hmm. our lives in proximity with others are sacred and the story that i framed that chapter with was about the murder of a girl who lived in our neighborhood and uh yeah and that so that happened when my daughter was still in high school now she's she's actually a second year student in college so that's uh that's happened it's a big thing well, I think I use that story in a sermon. Did and so too. that's... Ob-
0: also, it's a very powerful story to begin with. But the fact that I've told it a few times in a weekend a couple of years ago kind of stuck in my brain. What's your, what's your daughter studying? What's her major?
1: I'm, I'm almost low to admit it, but she has just declared religious studies. Oh, no. I know. It's like, I thought she was going to be a doctor. <laughs> <laughs> and like, she, do- yeah. she loves... She loves studying theology and mm-hmm. church history, and I went, oh my gosh, I I have accidentally created a mini-me. Uh, yeah. And she's not that. She's her own person, and she brings her yeah. own questions to it. But it's kind of amazing that these are this, que- questions that fascinate her.
0: The sins of a parent are passed down from yeah. generation to generation. You've created your own replacement she might what if you like took over your corner of the world would that be would that be great you could just retire and then just hand it over to her
1: well i think that what she might do with it which is lovely she has a really strong sense of uh, justice and is very involved with political stuff and Mm -hmm. so i I think that the religion piece for her and this is something i thought about when i was younger but didn't go the route um the religion piece for her helps to explain moral frameworks and why people do some of the things they do and what resources we have available to us in our spiritual Mm -hmm. lives to help us do better but that she's thinking about uh possibly becoming a lawyer for really yeah Mm. for uh, marginalized communities she's very interested in immigration law and and other kinds of justice issues like that and so she uh, she is just a completely amazing and lovely person and you can tell that as a mom i'm you're very proud. I'm super proud of her. She's always teaching me something new as well.
0: Hmm. Well, my daughters do that too, and the oldest one is nine. So I oh. can't imagine what happens when they're 20. Most uh, undergrads these days are kind of taking a different trajectory in their career than when, like even when I was a Bible major undergrad, um, where, you know, 20 years, I was not an undergrad 20 years ago. For the record, let me just say that. It was 18. But a couple decades ago, when you were a Bible major undergrad, you were thinking I'm going to do youth ministry. I'm going to be a preacher or I'm going to be an associate or I'm going to do something like that, or maybe just be a professor. Um, and now it seems that so many like undergrad religion majors are looking to do something social justice to use right. the old, old terminology. Do you, th- I've tried to figure out a reason for that. And I've heard different theories. Part of it is maybe a devaluing of the work that the church does and an, a greater value in like the nonprofit world. Why do you think that is like that? That's my take. Do you have a different take on it?
1: Uh, that's, that's an interesting way to put it because I see the same thing, but I think of it as quite a positive thing. And mm. that is once upon a time when we thought about justice, we were thinking about it within the boundaries of faith communities, but to have an entire generation say, no, justice isn't something that just happens within the boundaries of faith but it happens in the world mm-hmm. and so to me the idea that people who might or might not themselves be religious my, my my kids happen to have a pretty robust theological framework and they would call themselves Christians and they certainly mm-hmm. do believe in God I have a stepson as well who's who's uh, nearly 30. Um, so they have all those pieces, but for them, the idea of working in the world is actually spiritual.
0: Yeah, And yeah. so
1: it, it's, not, um, it's not a criticism of the church necessarily, uh, but more it's, a, it's the living out of things that they were taught by churches uh, mm. in a much wider arena. And uh, I get excited about that myself. Yeah. I think that's a good change.
0: I think there's part of it is is obviously a, a great change to see that like the work of all Christians is to be the hands and feet of Jesus in different sectors and different vocations. Obviously, that's a good thing, and I think part of the benefit of maybe some of the deconstruction of what church is is there previously maybe was an expectation that church was the only place good things could happen or gospelly things could happen. Uh, and so I feel like that's the positive read of it. I wonder if part of it, though, it, and maybe this is just being maybe a cynical take on it, is that people don't respect the institution of religion anymore as much as they used to. And I'm not saying yeah. your daughter or anyone is taking, like, choosing one or the other specifically as the only rationale for what they do. But it's just interesting that, like, I, and again, I don't want to talk about your daughter, but that that is a common trajectory for so many undergrad religion majors of uh, like going that direction.
1: It, it is. And, um, it it certainly would not be to say that there isn't a criticism of the institutions of religion by this generation. And that's okay. That's every, every generation has to take these things on for themselves. And Mm -hmm. for some generations, it winds up being acceptance and other generations it winds up being critique. Um, and so this one is definitely a generation of critique and, 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 you know, institutions that have been around four or five, Hundred years, a thousand years, they should be big enough to take that. Um, so, so for me, I always tend to see that as you know, just that's just part of the historical process. So, yep. so, so I'm 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 actually cool cool with that on that level. Um, but one thing I I think that really ties very deeply into the books that I've been writing is that for about fifteen years, um, my career between nineteen 19- 99, thereabouts, to about 2013, right in that framework. So it'd be more like 14 years. I was writing primarily about congregations and things that went on within the institutions of religion. And I was trying to encourage institutions to be their best, to figure out how Mm -hmm. to be more vibrant, to be more responsive to the longings of people in society you know as current as we currently understand the spiritual questions that are all around us the last two books both grounded and this new book grateful um are a bit of a change and that is i am now writing theology not just for the life of the church or in the boundaries of institutional sorts of Mm -hmm. gathering um But now I'm trying to figure out how to write theology and spiritual practices for the world, both within the church and beyond the church. Uh, Because of this very change is so many people who have stuck with being Christian or being Jewish, being within traditional religious frameworks, their children and, and their grandchildren have not. And one of the really deeply compelling questions in my life is how do I stay in conversation with that? How do I stay in conversation with, with my, my kids? Okay, you know, we have great theological conversations, but my kids bring their friends home, and, and um, I am absolutely compelled by the issues that are surrounding us right now is how will the stories, how will the practices, how will even rituals survive if institutional churches are in crisis? So so both Grounded and Grateful represent books that are th- taking theology and moving theology outside of the boundaries of church without alienating church people because yeah. I'm trying to hold those two things together right now.
0: And I, and I sense that in your writing, that that's what you're trying to do, where the language mm-hmm. you're using is inclusive, the stories you're trying to incorporate are the stories of the Christian tradition, also other traditions in there. And I mm-hmm. see you trying to make space for for. The, the different conversation partners on specifically, for example, the subject, which is about gratitude. Uh, like how, does, how do all these stories come together? How do they interact with one another? And it reminds me of um, uh, Miroslav Vol stuff about uh, like, you know, Christianity, Judaism, Islam are all evangelistic religions. They try to get people to join their group. And what we must do is we all must make our claim for the good life and let those interact with one another. And I see, like, you're trying to do that in your book. And so I, I, I'm picking up what you're putting down. Like, I get it. I see what you're doing. And um, what as you're trying to make that transition, in these last two books, what was the hardest part about writing for specifically inside the institution of Christianity and now trying to in, be a more inclusive writer to include all the, the different traditions?
1: The hardest thing about writing to and within the church for me, eventually became the fact that churches right now are in generally uh, such a place of anxiety um, about loss of membership, about mm-hmm. the shift of resources, But how are they going to pay for pensions in the future, can they keep yeah. their building, what about arguments about this, that, and the other thing. There's just this huge level of anxiety. Uh, Within conventional religious institutions, that anxiety translates itself into a desire not to sit around and discuss theology or to, um, you know, think about how we're really living this out, but instead it translates into a desire to fix things. And so, so, over the longest period of time, as I was writing for churches, I was writing for writing about spiritual vibrancy, and trying to open people up to thinking about theological and ethical questions in new ways, people would say oh, oh so if we just have a program where we invite people to come to our church and we're really hospitable then our church is going to grow. And I was just getting utterly discouraged because the work that I was doing was not intended programmatically, Get bodies inside of a building so that they would be able to have higher levels of giving in order to fix their roofs, and so that sort of instrumental approach to spiritual life uh, began to actually depress me, Hmm. and the anxiety that pushed that um, has done nothing but increase over the last uh, couple decades, and so I was hope I had hoped. That some of the things that I would write uh, would lessen people's anxiety and move them away from the quick fix mentality. But I'm afraid that that's only grown in many quarters of churches. And
0: um, why do you think it's grown?
1: Well, because it's certainly what I hear um, more and more when I'm on the road. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it has grown because of the social trends that are surrounding churches um, in, in both in all Protestant quarters, whether liberal or mainline uh, we're down to, if you, if you look at the population who's under 30 years old, um, 8% of people who are under 30 in the United States are white evangelical Protestants. 8% are white mainliners about 4% are Hispanic Catholics, about another 4% are Hispanic Pentecostals, or, or excuse me, Hispanic Protestants, and about 8% are Black Protestants, about 2% are Black Catholics. And so, so if you look at that, um, is that you see this incredibly, you know, s- sort of small percentage, a minority percentage of people under 30 who are Christians, And that is scaring the churches, that diminishment of percentage of the population that are members. And so everybody is becoming like, you know, how do we get millennials to come back to church? And um, how do we make sure that our institutions stay afloat in a time when we're looking ahead and we can't figure out where these demographics are going? So as the demographics have gotten more unfavorable, the desperation level within institutions has gotten higher, which means anxiety has gotten higher. And one of the things that happens when you have anxious and scared, desperate people is they make a whole host of really bad decisions about their future. As people cannot make good decisions if they're fearful. Um, but that's exactly what we've got going on right now is we have institutions that are making decisions out of a sense of fear. Mm-hmm. And and so all of that has combined, it's almost creating it's almost creating a spire uh, of, I don't want to call it a death spiral, but um, it, co- it could get near that, I would say, in another 10 years if people aren't care- more careful. Hmm. We really have to be in a different place. If, you, if we want church to be vital and to make it through to the next generation, and we want to hand off and steward institutions well, Um, it's almost as if institutions are, are doing everything wrong to make that the the good outcome happen. And so, uh, so, so that really concerns me.
0: Well, I think we've just found your next book. I think the next (laughs) book should be uh, writing all this down and teaching churches to not act anxiously and to become, uh, people of peace in a world that is vastly changed or that's quickly changing beneath their feet and it's uh, a different climate. Uh, Yeah. So there's your next book. Um, And why don't you write that? And then in two and a half years, we'll do the podcast (laughs) in which you have the answers and solutions for all that. And you can get rid of all their anxiety.
1: Well, well, you know, in a sense, that's what grateful is. Grateful actually is that book Mm -hmm. because one of the, um, one of the things that's true about gratitude is that you can't be fearful and grateful at the same time Mm-hmm. is that fear um resides in what neuroscientists refer to as the 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 bra- the back brain stem the the reptilian part of our brain and that's in the back part of mm-hmm. our heads and in human beings that's the part of our brain that is least evolved it's the most ancient part of our brain mm-hmm. and the, the front part of our brain is called the neocortex and that, and I'm not a brain scientist, but boy, did I do a lot of reading in brain science for this book. Um, in the neocortex, that's the more, that's the newer part of our brain. It's the most evolved part of our brain. And that's where complex human emotions reside. Things like compassion and empathy and gratitude. And so what neuroscientists have discovered is that, um, if you act out of fear, if you, if you let the primal part of the brain move forward, if you let those really primal emotions move into your neocortex, um, you, you, they take over your neocortex. And mm. so the scary primal emotions take over the higher thinking place.
0: Yeah.
1: But if you have built certain kinds of practices in your neocortex, practices around gratitude practices around acting with compassion practices of love practices of inclusion all those kinds of things if those practices are in the front part of your brain when those bits of your brain are fired the fear can't get up there and so gratitude and compassion actually keep fear in the back part of your brain they keep it in your primal brain so that it can't take over your whole your whole head, and so so. When I was writing "Grateful," I was actually thinking about many of the people in institutions, political institutions, religious institutions, uh, jobs that I know that are disappearing, like publishing and journalism. I am surrounded by by people who are afraid all the time, whether they're yeah. ri- writers or or um, journalists, pastors. Yeah. pastors Teachers, college professors, everybody's afraid all the time, and so so the part of the question for me in writing about gratitude was, okay, if gratitude really does drive out fear, how do we get there? How do we how do we strengthen practices of gratefulness? And if we really did that, if we really truly experienced gratefulness at a profound level as individuals. Could we take that experience as individuals and multiply it into our communities, and thus create pathways of gratitude in our institutions and our communal lives, where we we, we could function out of not fear, mm-hmm. uh, but instead out of reflective, compassionate action? Yep. At, so, the, so this question about religious institutions and their future is key. To the birth of writing a book about gratitude.
0: Yeah. Well, unfortunately, our listeners couldn't see you using hand motions of the back of your head oh. and the front of your head, <laughs> which was really helpful for me, and it helped me make sense of that more than those who will not be able to get those. So just imagine while you're rethinking what you just what Diane just said, hand motions, back of the head, front of the head, that really helps a lot. So just imagine that happened. Um, but I do think your uh, your acknowledgement of its practices, like you have to establish practice. You reference one of my favorite books, which is Duhigg's book, The Power of Habits. And I, one of the things that I'm more and more convinced of is gratitude is central to any healthy living. Across whatever spectrum you're in, whatever category you find yourself in, gratitude is one of the central things that all of us need to be healthy individuals. And the way that you experience gratitude is not just saying that I have this emotion, but you have the practices of, I'm going to establish gratitude in my life. And I, I love the the categories that you've created for like two options of gratitude. And we'll get into practices in a second. But you build off the, the two models. And the first model is the debt duty model, which is, I get a gift from you, therefore I feel like I need to write a thank you note to you. So you've given me something, I'm in debt to you, now I have to give this act of gratitude. And the other response is gift and then, therefore, I will respond to the gift. What Describe this gift and response idea of gratitude.
1: Yeah, that's a really important part of the framing of the book, is that we, part of the, the struggle we have with gratitude is we have the wrong stuff going through our brain. We get this debt and duty idea, mm-hmm. where if, if, you have, if you've been given something, you're indebted to the giver until you discharge the debt. Mm-hmm. And so it's something as simple as thank you notes, or it could be much more complex. Um, you know, you have to give your loyalty to someone or, or whatever mm-hmm. it is um, in order to discharge the debt of gratitude. The other piece, gift and response gratitude is the recognition that, in effect, there are no givers Except for God or the universe, the all there's the ultimate givers mm-hmm. are. If you're a theist, is God. If you're a humanist or a secular person, is the the universe itself, and that those are the only givers. And they have created um, an abundance of gifts which surround all of us all the time. Now, given that uh, gifts do come our way through specific channels, you know someone who knows us, might thoughtfully give us a gift. We might walk outside on a particular day and see a beautiful, you know, sunrise, and we feel like the universe or God has given us a gift. And so we do indeed receive from this abundance of gifts that are actually present around our lives all the time. Uh, Sometimes we don't see things as gifts. A Part of the argument of the book is that we need to learn to see um, these gifts. Um, but gifts don't put us in debt uh, instead gifts cause us to recognize the beauty of this abundance and the the really truly uh, I think deepest truth uh, the 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 deepest truth of the universe is that we're all receivers. Mm-hmm. Is that even a person who hands on a gift to you or a person who gives a gift to me, they've also been a receiver. They got that gift from someplace else. Yeah. And, so, and so we live in a beautiful complex of gifts. So that's, the, that's when I talk about gift and response gratitude. That's just where we live. You, you, and, and we respond to that by strengthening that network of gifts and response. In other words, we pass gifts on, we acknowledge where gifts come from, we care for others and make sure gifts are distributed evenly and fairly and beautifully around a table of humanity. Mm -hmm. And so that's gift and response gratitude. There's no obligation, there's no debt, there's only a recognition of abundance, the idea that we all receive as a primary sort of disposition of human nature and that we are stewards of these beautiful gifts for everyone else.
0: Yeah, you have this interesting riff from James 1, which is the text that says, Every good and perfect gift comes down from your Father above, the Father of lights. And you take it in a different direction than I've typically heard it or thought about it myself. And so how, how do you view like the James 1 text as uh, helping us see that the gifts simply are, like that they're all just gifts, everything um, is this untargeted gift to use your language?
1: Well, the, the piece of that, You could look at that James text and initially think, oh, yeah, well, God is the giver of all gifts, so therefore we're indebted to God, and we have to give back to God. And that's the way that I had always heard it. But then when I read it in relationship to this book, I realized that God is described in that that passage as the the father of lights. Mm -hmm. And as soon as you pay attention to that word light, light is one of the most diffuse gifts of all Mm -hmm. (laughs) of the whole universe. Um, You know, light is not specifically targeted towards any individual. It just is. And so the emphasis on the text is not necessarily that God gives you this thing, therefore you're in debt to God, but instead God has opened the, the sort of the, the whole nature of the, of the world and has imbued it with light so that it's available to everyone everywhere. And that part of the capacity of being human is living in the light. And so that becomes that metaphor for abundance or for gifts. And it reflects back on other texts as well. You mm-hmm. know, when when Jesus is talking about, you know, well, see the lilies of the field or these sparrows, you know, I tell you that God is has you know given them the most beautiful clothing in the world or these are these are gifts for you it rains on the just and the unjust and and so um these kinds these kinds of texts are about the unlimited nature of gifts and that gift giving is just part of the nature of the universe Mm -hmm. it's not about tying us in obedience to anything it's simply the reality in which we live and move and have our being.
0: Yeah, you have this uh, the bit about uh, the Eucharist, which you compare it to other pagan festivals that would have gone on at that time. And it's a great, it was a great comparison because, uh, as you say, the Eucharist is not trying to please gods. It's not trying to please you know Zeus or Poseidon or whoever, but it's recognizing receiving God's gift of abundance with humility that is returned with gratefulness. Uh, right. As a Christian, like, that's, like, our central part of what our worship should be, is gathering around the table, receiving this gift of the body broken, the bloodshed. How do you see Eucharist shaping people into being, like, people not who live in this um, duty model of, of gift, like, God's done this for me, therefore I have to do something back, but, like, we live as people in response to the gift that God has given us.
1: I've been uh, preaching a lot this uh Easter season. This is while we're, mm-hmm. you know, we're taping during this, this was the third Sunday of Easter. And um, everybody's been asking me to preach in gratitude. And what's been beautiful for me is that something I've never realized before is that here we are in Easter and the tradition is to go back and the church through the, the, tr- the standard lectionary tells the stories of all of Jesus' encounters, post-resurrection encounters again. And so, you know, there's Jesus showing up with the disciples in the upper room. There's Jesus showing up uh, on the road to Emmaus. There's Jesus showing up on a beach. And so I, I know these stories. They're mm. all in my my brain. But this time when I was reading them, I realized that all of those stories have something in common. And that is they are all about tables. Mm. And so in every one of those settings, it's, it's not just yeah. that Jesus is appearing, but that Jesus is appearing to people who are, who are eating a meal. And so the first, well, it's the second actually appearance after the, after Mary Magdalene, you get Jesus in the upper room. Well, I thought to myself, well, is that the upper room where the Last Supper was? And I went and I, you know, did my, little biblical research and lo and behold the the great tradition of that text is that jesus goes back to the room where the monday thursday supper had been held and so that's where the disciples are hiding out is in the room where they last had amazing passover feast with jesus where he washed their feet and everything so they go to that place They've. that's where they've locked their, themselves in because they're so terrified about whatever is going to go on next. Mm-hmm. And so here they are huddled in fear in their last happy place with Jesus. And it's in that room that Jesus appears. And so Jesus returns to the scene of the supper. And then um, you get the story about the Road to Mass where Jesus is recognized in the breaking of bread. And then you get the next story is another story about food where Jesus shows up when they're reciting the story about Jesus appearing on the road to Emmaus. That those two guys are telling everybody else, oh, my gosh, you can't believe what just happened. And we recognized Jesus when we were breaking bread. And then when they're telling that story about eating with Jesus, Jesus shows up and they're all sort of like going oh my gosh jesus is here and they're delighted and they're surprised and they don't know what to think and then jesus says do you have anything to eat and so it's a story where they're obviously gathered around food again and this just keep this just keeps going on and so when you ask a question about the eucharist it ties right back into the eucharist and So often when we consider the Eucharist, we're thinking about, oh, this is the meal where Jesus wants us to remember that he died for our sins. But the weirdest thing about the post-resurrection accounts is Jesus never, not once in those accounts, takes the disciples back to Calvary and says, points to the cross and says, this is what I want you to remember. Mm -hmm. Instead, what Jesus says in every one of those accounts is, feed me, feed my sheep. And and those meals that he shared with those disciples, those are still Jews that are doing this. Mm -hmm. And what would have been the case... For them is they would have opened all of those meals in prayers grace and gratitude for god is the creator of all that is for god is the giver of bread and wine and then good jews like jesus and his friends they would end a meal with a beautiful amazing ancient prayer goes back four thousand or so years that um cites the creation story of abundance you oh sovereign god ruler of the universe we bless you for this food there will and it recites about the manna how there is always enough to eat that there is always enough at the table and so when we talk about eucharist we're not just talking about a metaphor for jesus dying at calvary that's an aspect of what's going on there But we're actually talking about that supper, which was, I I have in recent weeks, as I've thought about the relationship between gratitude and the Last Supper, for the first time in my life, I've realized that that supper was really the last supper of a world of injustice and fear and oppression and violence. And it was the first feast of an age that is to come. Hmm. And that's the age where we finally embrace and live in the abundance that God has given us, that we accept the gifts of God for the people of God, that we live in the middle of that, and that we act truly as overseers, as it says in the, as it says in Genesis, that we kill, we kill, <laughs> kill we keep until the earth, we're overseers of creation. And I think that what Eucharist is trying to do, it's a, it's a table of gratitude where we're called back to the Genesis account and invited to live in the fullness of that dream of God as it is coming into being in the age that is to come. And so, so Eucharist for me has taken on entirely new dimensions of, um, of spiritual depth, um, and also very deeply personal meaning, um, that the table really, really should be the focus of a life lived in gratitude.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh that's good. Uh, that's good. You, um, talk about practices, uh, you talk about uh, your relationship with uh, Phyllis Tickle, who uh, yeah. famously was um, uh, a great thinker on uh, you know, prayer practices. Uh, I think famously she four four prayers every day that she would do, a prayer of thanksgiving. Um, and yeah. it was a, a tradition that, that many people have been blessed by. Uh, when you think about gratitude, it's not just something that's an emotion, but it's a decision you make. It's a disposition towards the world. Uh, what do these practices do to help get you in that disposition of gratitude
1: i like that book that you quote you know as well i obviously use this framework in my book charles Durh, Dur- it's do do yeah yeah his yeah his book on on habits mm-hmm. and um you know habits we all have habits I grew up United Methodist, and so I'm very familiar with this idea of habit. John Wesley talked about it quite a bit in the 18th century. And part of the problem with the universe is that we have a lot of bad habits. And and our habits are cued uh, up uh, by certain things that happen in our world. So you wake up in the morning and you smell coffee. And as soon as you do that, you think of what the next thing is to do. Mm-hmm. Um, whether it 's to put on your clothes or to you know kiss your spouse good morning or something so you so you, the cue is the smell of the coffee, and then you act on that in a habitual fashion mm-hmm. oftentimes without even thinking about it is you do something and so you, and usually in western culture that 's getting ready to for work or getting the kids ready to go to school yeah. and and so cues bring forth these actions. And John Wesley actually did talk about that quite a bit. And so what Wesley said is that we have these habits, but our habits are not life-giving. And so Wes- the whole Wesleyan movement, when it was founded, was about trying to create holy habits. Mm-hmm. And and so in the book I talk about how if we take our the cues of our lives and we link them to gratitude, then we begin to create a habit, this habitual opening of our eyes to be able to see gifts and to then be able to respond, um, to have an emotional response that is practiced, not just something that is random. Mm-hmm. Um, and that practiced response emerges out of life of habit around gratitude. So, um, for example, I did not write this in the book because... I did not have this habit while I was writing the book. It developed out of the book. Hmm. Um, I have a, oh, it's not, it's not here because I was just traveling, but um, I have a little uh, river rock that says gratitude. It's the word gratitude is inscribed in the river rock. And um, because I'm particularly bad right now at this stage of my life in journal keeping, a lot of people say, oh, keep a journal, mm-hmm. keep track of your gratitude. So every time you see the, a journal, it becomes a cue for you to think about what you're thankful for. And then the more you think about what you're thankful for, the more grateful you actually become. No. Uh, I'm, I've been very good at keeping a gratitude journal in recent years, but I have this rock. And so what I do is I put the rock next to me on my bedside table. Um, and when I go to sleep at night, the last word I see is the word that's inscribed on that rock and it's gratitude. Mm. That's good. And and that becomes cue. And then I think, oh, yeah, thank you. Okay, I'm thankful that my daughter is safe today. Or I'm thankful that I was able to pay uh, the car payment or whatever it is, you know, just little things that are important things. And uh, then when I wake up in the morning, because that darn stone is right on my bedside table, my cell phone is also there. So when my cell phone goes off, I reach for my cell phone, and sometimes I don't even hit my cell phone first. I hit the gratitude rock first.
0: That you, you. Yeah.
1: And so the first thing I think of in the morning is also, what am I grateful for? And so that silly rock has become my cue to give thanks. Mm-hmm. And it's not complex. It's not deep. It's not a 10-minute liturgy or a 30-minute meditative thing. It's literally just a little cue to frame my day morning and evening by saying thank you
0: that's good we all i mean we all have to have those cues and whether it's journaling or or a memento uh or it's you know prayer beads or or, you know necklace or whatever these little things keep us dialed into gratitude and it makes a difference Uh, you have a uh, transcription of part of an interview that um the holocaust survivor wiesel uh i always say his name wrong um
1: Yeah, Ellie was. Yeah, uh, so you
0: you went to Duke and got a doctorate. I didn't. Um, But there's (laughs) a line that he says when a person doesn't have gratitude, something is missing in his humanity. What do you think is missing in our humanity if we don't have gratitude?
1: Huh. The piece that really struck me in that interview was not necessarily the missing in humanity piece as much as wiesel himself saying how gratitude was the thing that got him through the camps yeah. being being in auschwitz what kept him alive and what they were what people who were in the camps were able to do and he made, he made a pretty big claim here is that it was folks who had a sense of gratitude were more likely to survive than not And so they found something to be grateful for and ultimately came down to just saying every morning when they they woke up, I'm alive. And having life was the thing that was the incubator of gratitude. And to be able to do that one day and then do that the next day and do that the next day It created a kind of power and resilience and fortitude and resistance against the evil that was around them. And so gratitude kept him alive. And I think that knowing why he saw it to be so positive helps us understand the negative construction of the sentence. Is that if you don't really know that you're alive, I don't think you're fully human. Hmm. If if you're not really conscious conscious of what an amazing gift this is, how can you treat that gift with in others with deep regard? Hmm. You lose something of your own humanity if you don't know that life is a gift. Hmm.
0: That's good. That's good.
1: And I think, that, I think that's what he was getting at, is that you, you've lost your capacity for compassion. You've lost your capacity to treasure the life of everything if you don't know how to treasure life in yourself.
0: Hmm. That's good. That's good. Well, I am um, grateful for this book, which luckily is titled Grateful, so I kind of should be grateful. You know, it is about gratitude and all that. Um, I, again, I am such a big fan of practices that lead us towards gratitude and reminders of that. And uh, there's so much good stuff in this book. I would highly encourage people to go get it. And if they did, you know what's going to happen. They're going to f- be full of gratitude. See what I did there? <laughs> Pulled it right back in. Diana, thank you for the time. It's great talking with you. And um, well done on the book.
1: Oh, thank you so much. Can I quickly end up one Yeah, thing? come on. Um, I was, uh, you asked me at the beginning some questions about the work that I have done and the work that I am doing and what are some of the, the similarities and differences. Uh, this, this particular book is really special to me for a, a big reason, and that is in much of my earlier work, I was writing from the position of being an expert where I was an expert in church history and an expert in congregations, an expert Mm -hmm. in these things. And I was sharing out of that expertise two people I care about deeply and institutions I care about deeply. And I wanted to to help save those institutions. I wanted to do something nice and helpful and good for other people. And in gratitude, it's not that. In In grateful, what happens is... I'm not an expert. I literally am a person who is struggling with this too. And um, I knew that there was a real lack in my life about gratitude. And so I went on a journey to figure out where that shortfall was and how I might be helped if I understood gratitude more. And so this is not a book of expertise and it's not a book about me trying to help others. This is a book about a woman who's literally struggling in the world and trying to figure out how to help herself. Hmm. And so there's a, there's a different quality to the book because of that. And as I wrote it, I actually wrote it during the first 100 days that Donald Trump was president of the United States And I have to tell you, you know, some people might feel grateful for that, but I was not one of those people. I did not feel grateful about that. And it was really hard to write a book about gratitude when you're not feeling grateful. But I got to the end of those 100 days uh, because that's when the contract was executed. That was the schedule that Mm -hmm. the publisher discerned for the book. I got to the end of those 100 days and my husband looked at me and he said, you know, this book has saved you and i th- I think that there's a, an atmosphere of that that comes through in the book, and it's not a book about fixing something or help or saving other people. It's really a book about finding a pathway that saved me hmm. and it it made a huge difference in my own life hmm.
0: That's good and I think that's where the best stuff comes from, like this is nowwen's like the Wounded Healer." I mean out of our wounds, we give life to others and uh yeah. I mean, obviously you, you don't have to read too much into the book to see that you're, I mean, you're telling in yourself that this is not something that comes naturally to you. And I think, I right. think something comes uh, very meaningful through that kind of work. And so I I think people will uh, definitely gravitate toward that. Cause I think many of us also struggle with gratitude. And so thank you for opening right. yourself up to, uh, to share that. And much thanks for that. Well,
1: Thank you. I hope that people find a path of gratitude. I, I think it might well be the best possible path that's available to us right now to find hope again and to find one another. Mm.
0: I'd co-sign that. That's good stuff. All right, Diana, it's been a pleasure.
1: Thank you, Luke.
0: Thanks for checking out Newsworthy with Norisworthy. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You are now adjourned.